What I'm looking for here is a quality of opportunity. Like I, I really think the system should be designed in a way uh, where everybody has the same, uh, where everybody's treated the same way, where everybody has the same rules, where there's no special rules for certain people. That's what Bitcoin is. So Bitcoin is a monetary network that uh, does not treat anybody in a special way. No one has power over anyone else. Everybody can access the network. They can use it. Um, it makes censorship basically impossible. It makes remote confis- confiscation impossible. Uh, and it makes deba- debasement impossible. There's no small group of people in a back room smoking cigars who are going to like determine your fate. You control your fate and you alone. Um, so that to me is the revolution. I'm your host, Anna Agarwal, and this is Indivisible AI. That's the voice of Alex Gladstein, one of the world's foremost experts on the subject of Bitcoin and human rights. Alex is the chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation and has been fighting authoritarianism as a human rights activist for close to 15 years. In the past few years, he has been writing and speaking extensively about the promise of Bitcoin for human rights. And he really knows this subject in and out. In this conversation, I'm going to be stepping out as narrator to help guide us through. Because Alex and I cover so much, I really want to help people understand the different pieces of this story. So the whole picture, beyond various media narratives, starts to click. If you're familiar with Bitcoin, I hope this conversation helps to crystallize its relationship to human rights. And if you're new to Bitcoin, well, I hope these ideas move you to see the world just a little differently than before. With that, let's dive in. Okay, so first I wanted to get a sense from Alex of some of the structural dynamics of our world today. Freedom House reports that 2020 marked the 15th consecutive year of a decline in global democracy. Why is it that most of the world lives under authoritarianism, where a small group of corrupt people at the top hold power for years, and exploit resources to limit prosperity for the rest. Most attempts that we've made to address this over the years have continued to fall short. First, just perspective for people. Uh, 4.3 billion individuals live under authoritarian regimes. 1.2 billion people live under double-digit or triple-digit inflation. Uh, Only about a billion people more or less live under a liberal democracy with a reserve currency and private property rights and things like that. So you're talking about uh, a small bubble of people, relatively speaking, on this in this world who, who kind of have a lot of financial privilege and, and political privilege. Uh, everybody else is, 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 is on, operating on a different level. Um, and I think really what it boils down to is like this idea in a way of fairness. Like, for example... Um, I think people look around at the world, uh, you know, they look at the world around them and they see problems and people have promoted different solutions to these problems. So obviously Marxism is a solution that people have promoted, right? Oh, hey, all those people like have too much wealth and we're all poor, so we should just take their stuff. Okay, so that's like one way of looking at it. Okay, that has held up extremely poorly in history because it requires... Uh, a centralized bureaucracy who ends up becoming corrupt and stealing everybody's money uh, and killing a ton of people. So that doesn't work. Um, so how else do we address this issue where like a small group of people uh, have special rights over others for no good reason other than that they that they have those rights? I mean, there's no uh, genetic or uh, economic or uh, moral reason why they should kind of uh, be able to abuse the rest of us. Right. So this is a, an age old, obviously, um, question, uh, democracy was built in this crucible and it's one, one very important way step in that direction on the political side of things. Well, one way that we can address this, uh, inequality of opportunity, uh, is that people could be more involved in choosing the government. So, so we could have like a check, on power there. Okay. So that has 
become evolved from an idea in ancient Greece and West Africa, et cetera, a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago to, to a global reality where a lot of people get to like vote in their own government and like the government has less power over the people. Okay. That's a good thing. Information technology has also been a really big force here. Progressive force, like you used to have to be rich or be in a certain class to like have information and knowledge and read and like produce books after the printing press and successive revolutions ending up with the, the smartphone, um, you know, anyone can have all of the world's knowledge in their pocket. It's kind of amazing. Uh, when I say anyone, I mean, you know, the 50 plus percent of the world's population that has access to a smartphone right now. And, and that, that is continuing to swiftly grow as we, as we move along. So that even in like very developed, developing countries, a quarter of the population has a smartphone. So um, it's pretty amazing. So that has also been like, a check on power. But at the end of the day, the economic piece is kind of the most fundamental. It's like the most base piece is like, how does the economy work? Who controls the money? Who controls the money? In fact, although designated as co-equal priorities to civil and political rights, at the inception of the human rights system after the Second World War, economic and social rights have largely remained unacknowledged in practice. This has resulted in political priorities supporting extreme income inequality, not at the hands of a free market, but under a system that has been rigged. By contrast, Bitcoin might just be the thing that gets us to an even playing field. What we're looking for here is a way to solve this that is, at least what I'm looking for, is not an equality of outcome situation. I'm not someone who believes in like violent redistributionism. Um, I I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, What I'm looking for here is equality of opportunity. Like I I really think the system should be designed in a way uh, where everybody has the same, uh, where everybody's treated the same way, where everybody has the same rules, where there's no special rules for certain people. That's what Bitcoin is. So Bitcoin is a monetary network that uh, does not treat anybody in a special way. No one has power over anyone else. Everybody can access the network. They can use it. Um, it makes censorship basically impossible. It makes remote confis- confiscation impossible. Uh, and it makes deba- debasement impossible. There's no small group of people in a back room smoking cigars who are going to like determine your fate. You control your fate and you alone. Um, so that to me is the revolution. Uh, we don't have enough of that in the world today. And I think very deeply that over time, as you pair the Bitcoin revolution with the information technology revolution and the political revolutions we've had, this is a very powerful force for good. Let's take a minute to talk about how we should guarantee protection against a surveillance society. Because if that feels to you like a very challenging prospect for our technological future, you're not alone. The human rights system has mostly been one of calling on states to protect their people. That's how it was designed. Everywhere, the text set forth language like states should, dot, dot, dot. Governments must adopt. But the reality is that most states have failed to meet this call. And not just dictatorships. There are many examples of democratic governments failing here as well. Recently, perhaps, no better example than COVID-19. Getting back to the Freedom House report that I mentioned earlier. It also notes that under cover of COVID-19, even democratic governments across the spectrum repeatedly resorted to excessive surveillance, restrictions on our rights to move and assemble, and in some cases, violent enforcement of those restrictions. So given everything we know, Should we really continue to throw our energy behind the idea of a government as a steward of human rights in the digital age? Maybe the solution lies elsewhere. There was this wave of democratic transformation um, that happened post-World War II in different waves, of course. Um, But the world began to democratize. In the 1980s, people saw a threat. Um, and this is a, a book from the 80s that I would I would recommend people read to get a sense of what, what people thought the threat was at the time. It's a book by a New York Times journalist, David Burnham, called The Rise of the Computer State. I'll just read the last um, 
paragraph in the book, so I think it's kind of uh, interesting for our conversation here. So, um, uh, basically, um, they were very worried about computers hurting democracy uh, in the 80s. The people saw it already. Um, we should all hope and pray that the day of dictatorships and authoritarian governments is done before substantial advances are made in AI and certainly before AI machines come into being. Any regime supported by the power of intelligent machines would be much more secure and more terrible than any all-human equivalent. Uh, then the author asks, does this warning bring us full circle to the cold Manhattan winter of the year 2020, <laughs> to the glossy high-tech world of Peter Strauss and the filthy disorganized slum of Bill Peterson and Sally? Will the bureaucracies of the next few days, decades, buffeted by powerful economic, political, and military fears, mobilize their ranks or computers for dark and crabbed purposes? Or will the individual men who run those bureaucracies choose a path where computers are used to help more and more individuals achieve their full potential? So Burnham thought that governments could solve the problem of the surveillance state and of digital control. Burnham thought we should do it through regulation, okay? That's the same uh, philosophy as Shoshana Zuboff is now recommending in the age of surveillance capitalism. They think the problem is the companies, the private companies, and they think that we need to go regulate them, okay? Um, I disagree. Uh, I, I don't think that regulation is going to help us. Like, I think that governments are too good at getting what they want. And uh, in the 1980s, a group of um, activists, late 1980s, 1990s, came together called the cypherpunks. And they said, no, we're not going to negotiate with governments for our freedoms. We're just going to take them. We're going to secure them with something called open source code. So we're going to use this new ability to communicate globally with each other instantly at the speed of light. Um, uh, or, you know, at least the speed of information. Um, we're going to use that ability to fight back and we're going to claim, um, you know, uh, free expression uh, and privacy on the internet through open source code. We're not going to like wait for governments to say that they're going to protect us. Governments fought this thing. Uh, Joe Biden and the Clintons in the early 90s, I mean, they really fought this thing. They tried to fight encryption. They tried to say it was for bad people. Thankfully, they lost. And now we have tools like Signal and um, all kinds of encrypted messaging and VPNs. And this is how we protect ourselves. This is how e-commerce was born. Like the world is way better because we have privacy technology on the internet. Um, and the strategy was to secure our freedoms with open source code, not to wait around for the politicians to like regulate and help us. The holy grail of the cypherpunks was digital cash. Um, they knew that um, in the future, you the way you could really control society was through finance. Um, so they, they began a series of iterations to try and invent digital cash. There were many interesting um, attempts made. DigiCash by David Chom being one of them. He invented this, essentially the, the, the idea of doing anonymous um, cryptographic uh, value transfer in the 1980s using blind signatures, essentially. It's very interesting. You can dig into it. Um, and he had this vision of a world where like you could pass under a toll booth and pay the toll booth without the toll booth knowing anything about you. And it'd be done, you know, it all being digital without being in your bank account. Um, interesting stuff that he was thinking about. DigiCash failed though, because the mint was centralized, meaning like the, the issuer of the money was still centralized in the hands of a few people and they could still debase, demonetize, freeze, etc. Meaning that the transactions were super private in DigiCash, but like the, the system itself was still controlled. So Cypherpunks went back to the drawing board. They tried other things. There was B-Money. There was BitGold. There was other attempts made. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto, who's the creator of Bitcoin, we don't know who they are, he, she, they, we, we have no idea. Um, they built on the shoulders of all these giants and, and in 2008 released um, the Bitcoin white paper. Um, again, on the shoulders of uh, Adam Back, uh, of Wei Dai, of David Chom, of... Uh, Nick Sabo, etc. As you dive into the world of Bitcoin, you begin to understand its defining characteristics are distinct. Because of its design, it has the potential to act as both digital cash and digital gold. And it is the potential for these two identities working together to be imbued in one protocol that creates the unique value proposition of Bitcoin. This thing came out and was launched in January of 2009 at the, you know, at the sort of 
in, in at the tail end sort of of the great financial crisis, right? It was born as a result of the great financial crisis. This is what people need to understand. Bitcoin is not necessarily a technology. Um, it is not some Silicon Valley thing. It is not um, the next Facebook. Bitcoin is a competitor to central banking. That's what that's that's at the root what it is. And if you read the, the Genesis block and the Bitcoin blockchain, it is a, it is a direct criticism of of debt monetization, a quantitative easing. Right? It is a direct criticism of the way that governments began to start funding themselves in the West in the face of crisis. Okay. Um, so we have two narratives coming together here. Digital cash, which was the holy grail, the cypherpunks. We need to be able to transact privately on the internet with digital gold. We need to make sure that the mint is secure from corruption and that these bureaucrats can't just decide to print more money when they, when they want to help out their friends and bail out banks. So it's really the marriage of these two philosophies. And it's very important to understand that it's the, it's the, it's the, it's, they make each other possible. You can have private digital cash, but it's going to be not very good. And the value is going to be extremely volatile. And eventually it's going to peter out. So all these privacy coins that exist, very interesting science, but like they're not going to hold up as money over time. You need the like mint, you need the issuance, you need the monetary policy to be beyond human control. That was the goal of Bitcoin. So with Bitcoin, we get digital gold, you know, we get essentially an asset that is provably scarce, uh, where no person can change the monetary policy. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. That's it. Uh, openly transparent. It's the same for everybody. No one can like pull a lever and change it. Today, all the rich people, they can change the interest rates. They can change the monetary policy, you know, screwing over everybody else, it, it, you know, and, and this goes for domestically and around the world. I mean, at the end of the 1980s, when the U.S. jacked the interest rates up to 20 percent to save America, that screwed over the developing world. OK, so every time they like change it, somebody suffers. It's, it's never like, oh, everybody's great. Like you have people on the Internet arguing that the inflation in the 1970s was great. Like talk to somebody who lived through that, like an average American. So, you know, a lot of these big trade-offs have been made in, in, in money and finance where the people who write the news and the people who like write the history books, like had it better off than the average person. Like the last 20 years have not been so great for like the lower 40 to 50 to 60% of America. Uh, we've had uh, declining or stagnant real wages while everything else has gone up way in value. It's becoming real tough to live a nice little life where you own a home and have a yard and send your kids to school. You know, this thing that was like more possible in the 50s and 60s, very difficult today. There's all kinds of collapse, social collapse in America. We have the highest sort of, you know, lowest sort of median uh, income in the developing world. One of the lowest, we have insane inequality uh, going, you know, similar to, to what we had a hundred years ago. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, all these people saying like, first they were like, oh, there's not going to be any inflation. And then they're like, oh, it'll be fine. You know, that the, they're not like living like the real, like they're not encapsulating the full American experience here, even just domestically. So you have this system, which has benefited a small few at the expense of everybody else. Okay. And that system is what Satoshi was criticizing here. Again, so this is not a Facebook or a MySpace or a Twitter or like a technology. Um, and, and it's not just about the privacy. I mean, privacy is part of Bitcoin. We can get into that. But it's really about creating a money system that no bureaucrats control. And that's what Bitcoin is. Now that we understand some of the fundamentals, let's explore some key technical features and how Bitcoin differs from other cryptocurrencies. For its strongest proponents, the bottom line is clear and unwavering. Bitcoin is the only currency that allows for total user control, and therefore the only true alternative to a fiat system such as the one we have today, where a small group of people, no matter how well-intentioned, ultimately make the decisions as to the monetary policy. For those in the Bitcoin world, this factor is part of the unique set of conditions that distinguish Bitcoin and its quest from all other cryptocurrency. Proof of work and full notes. These are two pieces of Bitcoin that are so, so important. You can have other digital currencies that have proof of work. 
uh, Dogecoin is proof of work. Proof of work alone does not solve problems. It needs to be paired with full nodes, okay? So, and I'll explain why. Proof of work means that there's no like uh, pre-mine, meaning like uh, a pre-mine is a term in cryptocurrency land when like the creators of the currency just like press a button and create it. Just like the Fed presses a button and credits JP Morgan's account or whatever. Um, this easy money leads to bad outcomes usually. Um, so uh, proof of work states that like you have to actually put electricity, some sort of, you have to have skin in the game. You have to actually put electricity in uh, to help run the system and for, for the for the reward of receiving new coins, right? So this is what Satoshi realized is that they could like run the issuance model and the monetary policy uh, off in a decentralized way through through um, through energy. So thermodyna- thermodynamically, people have to like put energy into the Bitcoin system uh, to uh, receive the new Bitcoin. This is how the new Bitcoin is issued every ten minutes is through an expenditure of energy. Uh, similar to gold mining. That's why it's, you think about mining. That's why they call it mining. When you're mining gold, you're digging, digging, digging. You're like, you're you're digging. It's a lot of work. And then, oh, you find some gold. Great. Well, that proves your work. The gold proves your work. It's proof of work, right? Um, either you leached it with all these chemicals and spent all this money to get the gold out of the ground, or you actually like panned it in a river or you found it somewhere. Like gold, having gold means you either paid a lot of money for it or or you exerted a lot of work to get it. Proof of work. Bitcoin has the same thing. When you have Bitcoin, you've proved that you've either worked or you've bought it, okay? There's no other way to get it. So proof of work, very, very important. It's the way that we have the issuance schedule that a certain amount of Bitcoin will come out every 10 minutes and we know what that schedule is going to be like for the next 100 years, okay? It's very, very different from from other projects. Now, other cryptocurrencies might have proof of work, but they don't have full nodes. So what a full node is, is user control. So Bitcoin is not run by a, a VC conglomerate. It's not run by an office in San Francisco. It's not run by a foundation. It's not run by any sort of corporation. Um, It's not run by an oligarchy. It's not run by a small group of people. Uh, It is run by thousands of users around the world. And you run Bitcoin. You, You run Bitcoin. You can sit at home and you download the software. You determine what blocks that the miners are creating are valid. You determine what software to run. So Bitcoin has user control. What full nodes refer to is essentially you can think of it as the Bitcoin server. So anyone can go download the Bitcoin server at home today using like less than 150 bucks of, of equipment. You can get a Raspberry Pi, a Raspberry Pi 3 or 4, and you can get an external hard drive and you can, you can download the Bitcoin full node and you can run the server that has all the transactions dating back to the inception of the network. So you can be part of this. And you can determine the truth in Bitcoin. And there are tens of thousands of people around the world who do this. So when you combine proof of work with full nodes, you get a system that, you know, issues money in a predictable way that is, um, you know, open and, and transparent. And you have it so that the users control the rules, okay? Not some, like, group of people. All the other cryptocurrencies have, like, a small group of people who could basically make the decision. Like in Ethereum right now, we don't know what the monetary policy is going to be like in the next two years. You know, a small group of people are going to like figure that one out. Great. I, I wish them good luck. But but this is a different system than Bitcoin where the users are in control. So that's, to me, what Bitcoin is. Alex mentions that full nodes are important. So I ask him if this means that average users should be thinking about running full nodes to truly adopt and embrace Bitcoin development. He assures me that this isn't the case. We don't need everyone to operate a full node for the system to work. But running a full node is in your interest to ensure that the Bitcoin you hold is actually yours. If you store your Bitcoin with a custodial service like Coinbase, it's important to remember that you don't actually own that Bitcoin. By contrast, non-custodial services provide users with the ability to have full position of their Bitcoin at all times. Meaning, Only you have access to the funds, and no third party can prevent you from managing or moving that money in any way. This is fairly revolutionary, if you think about it. Exchanges are subject to regulation, to freezes, hacks, fees, and a withdrawal process. For most people, in America at least, the risks are outweighed by the convenience. But those stakes may change, as centralized authorities become more invested in trying to control cryptocurrencies. 
It's important to highlight here that while jumping into non-custodial ownership isn't necessary to get started, it is in each user's self-interest and was built into Satoshi, the Bitcoin creator's vision for the project. We have Bitcoin in theory and Bitcoin in practice. Okay, Bitcoin in theory is what I've just covered. Um, Bitcoin in practice is a journey. I mean, people take, it took me years to even just begin to understand this thing to, to the extent of that I want to actually use it, okay? Um, hopefully people are smarter than me and they can grasp it faster. Uh, but like, the point is, uh, there are levels. It's a rabbit hole we call it. You, you go down and it takes you as far as you want to go. I mean, it's, it's, it's infinitely deep. deep. There's <laughs> yeah. no bottom. So, um, the, the, but I mean, I think most, most realistically, like the journey of like a person interacting with Bitcoin is going to go something like this. They download Cash App. They see that there's a Bitcoin option. They buy $20 of Bitcoin. Or maybe they set up a auto, you know, DCA to buy a dollar a day or whatever, or a dollar a week. or And then they start buying Bitcoin, okay? They think it might be like a good investment, okay, for the future, uh, maybe for their kids or something, okay? Um, now, then you start thinking about it. You're like, okay, well, who owns that Bitcoin? Well, if you don't touch it, Square owns that Bitcoin. It's their Bitcoin, not yours. You've given them money. You've transferred uh, you know, dollars from your bank account to Square's balance sheet. They haven't given you anything. Now, this is very important. Um, and, and that's a good step one for a lot of people. For many, many months, they may just sit there and start stacking Bitcoin into their Square account. Great. Good way to start. What you want to move to is the ability to think about that you can be your own bank. Very important in Bitcoin. Okay, so you can withdraw from your cash app to a hardware wallet or to or to a software wallet on your phone, what we call a hot wallet, uh, maybe a blue wallet, maybe a cold card. Um, and what you're really doing, I mean, the Bitcoin doesn't live on your phone or on your hardware wallet. That's a very important thing to understand. We have uh, the Bitcoin lives on the servers that we all run around the world. That's where the coins actually are stored. Um, what lives on your phone is is the is the signing key, okay? Basically, the the spending mechanism. So, what you're doing when you're like hiding uh, this information on this USB key or, or on your phone, you're hiding the 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 key, the the password to, to your account. Um, and then, you know, you keep that offline, ideally on a hardware wallet, and nobody can spend your Bitcoin. Like. Don't worry about it. Like if you've backed it up correctly, like you're good. No one, no one can spend your Bitcoin without that, without that phrase. Like there's no hacking here. There's like, they either get the phrase or they don't. If they don't have the phrase, they can't move the Bitcoin. So your Bitcoin stays where it is in stasis uh, in the network that is run by all these people around the world. And it can only move if you sign it, if you authorize it. So you have your key and some people, this is like level two of Bitcoin. Uh, now you're self-custody. Now you're being your own bank. This is great. You're on the right track. Okay, from there okay, maybe then you're like interested in running a server. So you maybe download it on your laptop or you get a Raspberry Pi and you set it up. That's that's more of a hobbyist thing. Let's just be realistic here. Like it's, that's more if you have time and you're like inclined and that's okay. Bitcoin doesn't need everybody to run a full node. It's great if everybody does, but Bitcoin needs tens of thousands of people to run a full node. And that's where we are. Bitcoin will eventually have hundreds of thousands of people running full nodes. Fantastic. Um, the, 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 there isn't like a minimum amount of full nodes. I mean, I would say that like where we are is fine. The reason to run a full node is not altruistic. It's selfish. The reason to run a full node is to make sure that the Bitcoin that you're receiving is real Bitcoin. If you're receiving Bitcoin onto a wallet, people could, people could be messing with you. So if you're running a full node and, and you are receiving your Bitcoin through your node, like you are verifying that that Bitcoin is real. Okay. So, so there's like the, the reason to run a full node is entirely selfish. Um, by doing it, you, you do have this benefit of like you're, you're just adding to the decentralization of the network. You're, you know, adding another, you know, record of history to p other peers that can connect to you and use you as a reference. Like it's a, it's a good thing to do. But like generally speaking, the reason to use it is is that you can be your own bank. So I'd say that's stage three. And then beyond that, there's like all kinds of cool stuff you can get into. As we get further into Bitcoin, some of this other stuff is going to become even easier than running a full node. Um, like some of these apps now where you can use the Lightning Network, which is like a second layer on Bitcoin. Uh, CoinJoins, which is a way to have do private transactions on Bitcoin. A lot of cool stuff happening. So, you know, but this is all like further steps. I mean, you have to think of Bitcoin like a four-year college course where 
you're going to do intro to economic history and money and why did Satoshi create Bitcoin and what is it? That's like that's like a year, okay. And then second year is Bitcoin in practice. How does it work? Like maybe this is where people would do some some coding if they're interested. Le- learn how um, wallets work. Learn how transactions work. Uh, learn how nodes work. Maybe you run your full node, etc. Then maybe year three you get into um, privacy. Maybe that's when you start thinking about, okay, well, how can I like make my transactions private? How can I coin join? What about this lightning network? Um, how can we scale these transactions? Okay. Year four would be mining, right? So, so mining is really interesting, but like very few people are going to mine, like very few participants are going to mine, but mining is very interesting to think about because it'll change the world in terms of energy. So, uh, mining will unlock previously stranded energy that no one else can use. It'll allow economic activity in places where there isn't any. Much like we used to settle on rivers because they were sources of economic activity, humans are going to flock to places with renewable energy and an internet connection because they can generate Bitcoin. This is going to start to happen in the next decade. Um, So, you know, mining is really interesting, but it's like, it's kind of like a deep dive and (laughs) it's like very heady and very like, uh, uh, you know, not really that related to your day to day. Um, I mean, if you have solar panels, I mean, you can run a miner at home. It's just like, it depends on the price of the Bitcoin versus the dollar, but you know, you may be paying for that privilege right now. You'd be making money. Um, but it just depends on the markets and stuff. But, uh, look, if you've got a solar system at your home and you can, you're just turning sunlight into money. I mean, that's awesome. So, but that, that's like a, a very, you know, let's put it this way. Most users will buy, save, spend. That's it. That's like 90% of Bitcoin users. Um, uh, an additional some several percent will run a full node and then an even smaller percentage will mine. And that's fine. And that's just the way it's going to be. But I, I think like a, a realistic course would cover all of these things at least. And you, you would familiarize with all these things because they're all related. They're all interrelated to how Bitcoin works. Alex just gave us a brief introduction to mining. I was curious to better understand the relationship between individuals mining for Bitcoin today and future benefits for countries to have miners or mining operations located within their borders. Turns out that it speaks to the idea of states being able to create their own reserve currency, which is currently a role that is exclusively held by the U.S. dollar as controlled by the U.S. government for the entire world. So help me understand, what are the advantages of how mining is geolocated? And what does it mean, you know, when we hear about in the news, for example, China has banned mining? You know, what what does that actually mean in practice? And then I've also heard you say that there are potential advantages, for example, for the U.S., um, you know, as a country to have more mining located here. So can, can you explain yeah. how, you know, those miners operating on an individual level still, you know, working in a specific location kind of accrue advantages for that nation's geopolitical position um, in in this kind of Bitcoin world future sure. that we're thinking about? Yeah, I mean, so just to play out the string and, you know, you can assign whatever likelihood you want of this. Uh, you could say, you could say it's a 5% likelihood. I think it's a lot. I think it's a lot higher than that. But um, hey, what we're talking about here is the way that money works and the money hierarchy and what is the ultimate monetary good that, that nations settle in, that nations settle their balance of payments in. Okay, so that was gold for a long time. Um, and then it basically turned into the dollar, backed by gold after 44, okay? After 71, it just sort of turned into the dollar, um, which was backed by this, like eventually sort of solidified and backed by this, uh, deal with the Saudis. Uh, we call it the petrodollar. Um, some people call it the treasury bill system. Uh, but like the hardest, the most desired money in the world became U S debt, basically U S treasuries, et cetera. This is sort of like what a lot of governments would save in, uh, over the last many decades. I, you know, so you go from gold to the dollar backed by gold to just dollars, 
And now we're going to, I think, go to the Bitcoin standard would be like part four. So if you think that that's a possibility that like Bitcoin will be the like kind of um, reserve currency of the world, uh, then you start to understand mining as the way where you can turn energy into the reserve currency. So not possible for other countries in modern history. Like the only one who can create reserve currency is the U.S. government. 4% of the population and not just 4% of the population a tiny handful of people running 4% of the population have the control over the money that determines the fate of everybody else on our planet. So you have to think about mining as a way of turning sunlight or water or or, or wind or nuclear or, or fossils or whatever you have. You have to think about the fact that we potentially are living in this world where you can now turn those energy resources directly into the world reserve currency. And, and that's really interesting for developing nations, for geopolitics. Uh, eventually, once I think when countries all start to understand this, there's gonna, everybody, every country's going to have a mining operation. Will private mining be allowed? I don't know. Um, that's why it's kind of important that Bitcoin was bootstrapped the way it was. Like, we'll see. I mean, governments will compete to mine because they're going to want the income. Because when you mine, you, you receive uh, right now. Uh, what's what's called the block reward. Some of that is like a subsidy that is a new Bitcoin issued. And this is going to, you know, in this way, about 18 million Bitcoin have come into existence and the, the next two point whatever million will come into existence between now and the year 2136. Okay. So, but that, that every 10 minutes, this like block reward comes out and is given to the winning miners. Okay. Um, that, that block reward um, the subsidy piece is going to dwindle algorithmically over time to zero. So after 2136 or so, there'll be no more new Bitcoin coming in. So the other piece of the block reward is fees. So like when I send a Bitcoin transaction to you, I put a little fee to incentivize, incentivize a miner to put it in, take it out of the queue, put it in their block, throw some energy at it and try to win. And then they move on, mine the next block. So the fees right now are only like 10 to 15% uh, of the reward. But as we get towards 2136, they'll eventually become 100% of the reward. So there will always be demand for mining because people will always be able to make, you know, what I think by then will be quite clearly the world reserve currency um, through through mining. Um, so this is just an important kind of mechanism to understand. So you just heard a little bit of what it might look like for Bitcoin as an open, neutral, and scarce form of money to become the world's reserve currency. But to really even begin to understand Bitcoin, we must understand the world's current financial system as seen through the lens of the petrodollar. Think of it as a root element that's connected to many of the most sticky negative outcomes in the world. Massive income inequality, empowered, growing dictatorships, and a continued reliance on fossil fuels, just to name a few. So do you ever wonder like me, why these outcomes are so persistent, despite decades of advocacy and policy efforts to see a change. It begins with a transition from the gold standard and a political pact between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia in the 1970s to price oil in dollars. Gold was like getting in the way of the U.S. government um, uh, financing its war in Vietnam. Um, and its social programs, guns and butter. Um, other nations didn't believe that we could hold the peg that we promised in 1944 to everyone else in the world, that we would be the guarantor of the world reserve currency and we would hold that peg at $35 per ounce. There were a lot of signs in the late 60s that that was under stress and that, that we weren't going to be able to actually redeem the dollars that all these other banks and people had for gold. Um, we had a lot of gold, but we, we actually issued a lot more, uh, debt that, than, than we had gold. Um, so a lot of countries were like worried and, and the French even sent like a battleship to New York city to like get their gold back in 1971. British asked for some of the gold back. So a few days later, Nixon went on TV, 1971, the Nixon shock, um, took us off the gold standard. He basically said, we're not going to redeem dollars for gold anymore. Um, so this was part of a very inflationary decade, a uh, huge inflection point for the world's huge transition point. Um, would the U.S. Would the world still want Would the world still want to save in dollars? Would this world still be dollar centric if it wasn't backed by gold anymore? Was the big question. So um, these 
oil countries, which had this newly found power that they, they got from like fighting, getting, getting, getting rid of the colonialists, um, you know, these dictatorships uh, in the, mainly in the Arab world, they started throwing their weight around a little bit. And, and after the U S uh, kind of like, I don't know, I would say provoked to some countries with agricultural policy and ra- raising grain prices and stuff. Uh, and, and after we supported Israel in the Yom Kippur war in 73, um, again, this was already after the dollar had been devalued by 20% against other currencies. So countries were already like not so hot in the dollar. And all of a sudden you just had all this new stress from oil going up by 4X, 5X, from $2 a barrel to $10 a barrel. Massive gas lines. People were upset in the United States. Nixon was under heavy fire. So so they were like, how do we fix this? So basically they figured out a deal where they went to the Saudis. Saudis came to the US, um, 74, figured out the petrodollar system. Okay, US will protect Saudis and sell them enormous amounts of weapons, basically become a non-market exporter of weapons to Saudi. Um, and in exchange, they will denominate oil sales in dollars, forcing all the other countries to, to get dollars to buy oil. Uh, very important. And and then recycle uh, that those petrodollar profits back into U.S. debt. Okay, that's the, this is petrodollar recycling. So this is how they saved the dollar, uh, how they kept it in demand, how it became hegemonic uh, over the coming decades. Hugely important in our struggle against the Soviets and the Cold War. Um, really was like a huge phenomenon until 82, pretty much. Um, now here's where like it splits, like after 82, the oil prices go down, the Arab countries become less important, but they still are important in terms of pricing. Uh, so even through the eighties and nineties, as Germany and Japan and even China stepped in as like the largest buyers of our debt, um, the thing that made our debt valuable continued to be in many ways, the fact that uh, the world's energy markets were priced in dollars. And this was, this was dictated, continued to be sort of dictated by the Saudis. Non, this is again, non-market decision. This was a political pact. Saudis could have sold oil to anybody in any currency. This was like a decision that they made in exchange for protection. So we've made this deal with the devil. This is why we've had to prop up the house of Saud and deal with all their terrorism. And 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi. Bin Laden was Saudi. Uh, if you re- I have a book of all Bin Laden's writings. I mean, this is you know something he's not very happy about. Um, they exported terrorism around the world. They torture female political prisoners. They've destroyed Yemen. The Saudis are one of the worst dictatorships in the world. They murdered Khashoggi um, with impunity. And we have not been able to do anything about it. Uh, uh, Bush couldn't do anything. Bush loved the Saudis. The Clintons loved the Saudis. Trump couldn't do anything. Trump and Biden both said they could. It's too costly. Trump was basically like, what do you think? I'm stupid. I'm not going to like, you know, go back on my word against the Saudis. So congressmen and women have tried to like push into like inquiries into 9-11 and Saudis. They got canceled. Um, we've never really been able to move against them. So we've had to back these people for all these decades because they like help prop up the system. So I think that that's, that's quite important to understand. While Saudi's human rights violations may be apparent to many, what's less obvious is that through the petrodollar system, the U.S. has been complicit in the growing power of the House of Saud. We aren't on the outside of these outcomes, and that needs to be deeply reckoned with by the U.S. people. This, however, is only one piece of the petrodollar story. Let's examine some additional consequences for trade, inequality, and war that have resulted from the U.S. decision to protect this system. You know, after Cold War ended, we didn't do another Bretton Woods. We didn't like reset the financial system. We just kept the dollar hegemony going, kept increasing our debt to GDP ratio, which was 30 percent in the 70s is 130 percent now. Part of the Triffin dilemma, which states that essentially, like if you are the reserve currency issuer, uh, there's going to be all this demand for your currency around the world. And you're going to be you're basically going to be forced into running a trade deficit. Um, now this has had like hugely negative consequences for our domestic population. Uh, you know, the elites have done absurdly well because it really helps the coastal elites, anyone in defense services, technology, Silicon Valley, wall street, crushing it under the petrodollar, the average American, not so much manufacturing, totally eviscerated, destroyed jobs, exported abroad, 
dollar's too strong, we can't export, uh, has led to stagnant or falling wages, rising home prices, rising education prices, rising healthcare prices, opioid a pandemic across the country. So not a pretty sight if you're not like in the top 10%, let's put it that way. Um, so, you know, but again, the people in DC and Silicon Valley and Wall Street, they control the country. So they keep pushing us in this direction and they fight off any challengers. The big challenge came at the end of the 90s, the petro euro, uh, Saddam Hussein decided to um, to sell um, uh, his um, oil in euros, uh, and um, it was successful. By 2002, he was selling 5% of the world's oil in euros. France and Germany were happy. Um, the United States was not. The United States, with the help of the UK, invaded Iraq in six months later. And then by June 2003, Iraq was back to selling oil in dollars again. And look, no one knows why we invaded Iraq. None of the explanations make any sense. It wasn't for human rights and freedom. It wasn't for WMDs. I mean, they didn't exist. And it was certainly wasn't uh, Colin Powell had to waste his career's integrity lying about that in front of the UN, um, selling the war to the American people. 70% of the American people plus wanted to go to war. Um, and it certainly wasn't uh, to any connection to 9-11 or Al-Qaeda. None of that existed. Was it to counter Iran? doesn't make any sense. We were supporting uh, Saddam in the 80s against Iran. So all, all the popular explanations, official explanations, none of them make any sense. And it really wasn't for oil either specifically. Like it wasn't for the loot. Like we didn't need that oil. We, we had oil from Canada ourselves, Venezuela, Mexico. We, we didn't really import much oil from the Middle East. So it's kind of like, you know, what, what is it at the end of the day? This is a compelling reason. I mean, the petrodollar system runs the world. Uh, the fact that the energy markets are priced in oil, uh, priced in dollars is insanely important, not just for the energy itself, but for the, for the derivatives, like the amount of derivatives on each barrel of oil are like astronomical. So you have this huge market, which drives everything else priced in dollars. We will protect that. And protect that we did. In recent years, however, one core piece of the system has started to break apart in ways that the U.S. is no longer in a position to control. There's two parts to the petrodollar system. There's the petrodollar itself and the denomination of sales of oil and energy in dollars. And then there's the second part, which is the recycling part. Now, the second part has fallen apart. Um, the Arabs stopped uh, recycling in the 80s. Um, the recycling piece started to be done by, you know, meaning the, um, a, you know, investment of profits in dollars back into the US. The baton was passed to others, as I've explained, to the Japanese, to the Germans, to the Chinese. Um, but the, the pricing of oil and energy in dollars and trade in dollars as a result of this pact in the 70s, which saved the day for the elites in America and for the dollar, um, continues to be super important today. The recycling piece, not so much. So what you saw was like a similar moment to the end of the 60s where the world was like, hey, wait a second. We don't know if the U.S. can hold the gold peg, you know, exorbitant privilege. We're not so sure about this. We want our gold back. <laughs> OK, well, now you have the rest of the world saying, wait a second. We don't know if the U.S. can actually pay us back all this debt. We're not we're not so sure about that. OK, the Chinese have been like very clear about this many times. OK, so that as you've pointed out. Yes, they they continue to sell us stuff and they continue to take dollars from us. Okay, but instead of investing those dollars back in our treasuries, they're now investing them in like conquering Africa and and southern Asia and Latin America through like the Belt and Road program. They're investing it in in other kinds of hard assets. Uh, Likewise, other countries that are like exporting to us, um, they have started to like diversify and not just like invest in U.S. debt. Okay. So there's like a decreased demand for our debt. People don't value it as highly anymore, uh, which has forced to prop up the value of it, has forced the U.S. to 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 mon- to, to, monetize, to debt monetize, to, to print new money to buy the debt. OK, so if you look at our assets on our um, balance sheet, the government, uh, they have really expanded in, in the last decade, uh, super, super dramatically um, as a result of needing to. Uh, buy these government bonds. They go onto the Fed's balance sheet, right? So that's what the Fed is doing. It's printing new money. It's depositing it to the private banking system. And in exchange, it's taking bonds from the private banks, putting it on its balance sheet. So you're watching this balance sheet go like that. Um, this is all happening as the rest of the world demand for, for this, for our currency is like 
going down. We are, we are artificially keep trying to prop it up as much as possible. But the system is under a lot of stress. Other currencies are now starting to do, other countries are starting to do a lot of business in their own currencies. We'll see what happens. I mean, a lot of people don't really think that like the US dollar will be as dominant in five to 10 years as it is today. Uh, certainly 15 years. I mean, the issue, the issue has always been like, well, what are people going to do instead? I mean, you know, the dollar still reigns supreme over like the euro or the yuan or the yen or whatever. Like, so people really couldn't see a way out here. Um, it, you know, were we going to go back to like a multi a bipolar or a multipolar financial world? I mean, we'll see. The point here is that even though the dollar may be losing its status as the world reserve currency, for most Americans, this presents a cause for celebration rather than concern. The argument is that under the Bitcoin standard, America is poised to succeed as a global economic leader in a way that includes more people domestically and drops the problematic associations that have tarnished its human rights legacy under the dollar system so far. Sounds like a pretty good trade to me. The fact that everybody else had this demand, artificial demand for the dollar, led us to be able to sustain this like huge negative balance of payments, uh, sort of deficit for so long. But once everybody else doesn't want our stuff, okay, then then we're no longer in the Triffin dilemma. We're no longer the reserve currency. We devalue, okay, our exports become competitive again. Maybe we start bringing those supply chains back to the U.S., making our own medicines. We start actually making stuff. We're a dynamic manufacturing economy. We can make all that stuff. We can make all these things. Um, and then maybe that shifts, okay? But as long as we have the reserve currency that we're issuing and we're just exporting treasuries mainly, which was the case, you know, for the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, 2000s, et cetera, like that's literally how they saved the system. William Simon, who was the treasury in the 70s, was a bond salesman. I mean, he figured this out. He figured out we could do this, could sell our debt to keep us going. But I think this is going to dwindle. And then all of a sudden, we're presented with an interesting opportunity for America because I think we can be quite dynamic in a Bitcoin standard. I mean, we have an incredibly talented population. We have some of the most important companies in the world, uh, still the largest military, all these other things. Uh, I mean, we're very dynamic in the Bitcoin space. We have uh, home to immense amounts of talent here, immense amount of people who own a lot of Bitcoin. Um, while this doesn't give them any control over the network, it, 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 you know, it makes sense that the U.S. would do well in this situation. We're also like a free, freer country. Okay, we have property rights, free expression, uh, separation of powers. These things reverberate with Bitcoin really well. Bitcoin is very; it gives property rights, gives free expression. Um, it is, it, you know, it's uncorruptible. It's open. Uh, it can trade 24 seven anywhere instantly. These things are not good for dictatorships. These are not good trades for dictatorships. So over time, it's going to be very bad for like authoritarian regimes. Like it's not, it's not centralizable or capturable or censorable. Like this is just not great for them. It's going to reduce their power over their people. So I think like we're pretty well set up for like the U S being very prominent and dynamic in a Bitcoin standard. Um, but without a lot of these like horrible negative externalities that, have, that, have, that we've had to deal with. So that's essentially my thesis. As we move away from the petrodollar standard, another benefit that stands in the mix is accelerating towards a clean energy future. Here, we are presented with yet another dimension of the Bitcoin story, energy. As you've probably picked up by now, the headline framing that Bitcoin consumes massive amounts of energy and must therefore be stopped is off. To really understand the energy profile of Bitcoin, we must absorb what Bitcoin stands to change relative to how energy is being produced and distributed today. Bitcoin miners are only got one thing on their mind, profits. They don't care about anything else. They're just going to go for the cheapest possible energy. Uh, that is going to increasingly be renewables, okay? Uh, there are many places in the world that have insanely amazing untapped renewable resources. The problem is there's no, like, transmission lines. You can't hook them up to grids. So it never made sense to build those structures. Well, now it makes sense. You can just build the structure and mine Bitcoin. So wind farms, solar, geothermal, even nuclear, I mean, you name it. Like, if you've got like a situation where you could build the thing and be successful, but you'd have to curtail a lot of the energy because there's not enough population nearby. This is where Bitcoin's going to go. It's where Bitcoin already grows. The, re the reason why it's in China right now is because the Chinese government, uh, again, another political decision in the last few decades 
made a commitment to just make this enormous amount of energy and they couldn't use it all. So the China, so people went 10 years ago, started mining Bitcoin there. And then during the winters, they realized that they, the energy was getting a little more expensive because the, the, it's not the wet season. So they like moved elsewhere in China and they used other, they, they basically bribed officials to let them have cheap coal energy, uh, which at market prices would, wouldn't have worked. They had to literally do corruption to get it done. Um, but at a market rate, like there's no one like very few people are like mining Bitcoin with coal at like the market rate competing with other coal like consumers. That's not really how it works is there's like a, a market for all these prices and Bitcoin really only works well where there's no one else competing for you. That's why it's like often out in these like remote places. Uh, it's just economic reality. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to bootstrap a huge amount of renewables. It, it could benefit nuclear in a huge way because like nuclear just has this like sort of stable amount of output um and at nights summers like like the demand goes lower so hey you could just flex in bitcoin and get more revenue for the state so uh, germany has too much wind power great flex in bitcoin mining um you can you can have a higher capacity look the horrible stuff we saw happen in Texas, you can have a grid that's like overproducing so that you never have that issue again. And it just, when the people, when the residential and industrial customers aren't like using this enormous amount of energy, uh, which, you know, in Texas would be, you know, mainly solar and wind in West Texas, at least um, maybe some natural gas. But the point is you're, you're, you're mining Bitcoin with the, with the, with the balance. And then when the load shifts to more demand from other kinds of consumers, the balance shrinks. We've spoken about Bitcoin as a source of financial freedom. It's a monetary system that can't be debased by any central authority. And it's also very difficult for governments to find and seize. In this way, Bitcoin is already being used by people all over the world as a tool of economic self-empowerment and transformation. Alex's writing discusses use cases in Nigeria, Ethiopia, Sudan, Venezuela, and other places that I would recommend people get familiar with. Shifting from present day to the future, a final piece of this story for today's episode is Bitcoin as a check against financial surveillance. Cash is disappearing. In fact, it's all but gone. So what does it mean for human rights as we move towards digital currencies that could allow the government, corporations, or both to track all of our movements, automatically deduct fines and taxes, and generally control access to our money with the push of a button? What if we had the power to make sure this wasn't an option? Central bank digital currencies are coming. There's a war on cash. Like children born today won't use paper money in the future. It's going to be all digital. Governments are trying to phase out cash in favor of digital cash, what they call central bank digital currencies. These are tools of surveillance, control, for spending, negative interest rates, uh, blacklists, censorship. Uh, cash is a tool of freedom and it's it's disappearing, right? So um the mission of keeping it of of keeping the attributes of cash that are pro human rights and pro freedom alive that it's non discriminatory it's neutral can't be censored it's private all these things are so important and they're all going to be taken away by CBDCs so we need an alternative and I think that Bitcoin is best placed to provide that alternative um, in that it, it can't really be controlled I mean all these other projects can be like pressured shut down. Uh, regulated, et cetera. So, I mean, we really are going to live in this world where we have like corporate money, which includes like other cryptocurrencies and like companies and corporations. And then we're going to have government money and we're going to have Bitcoin. So this is like the general breakdown here. Um, and in Bitcoin, uh, it, you know, we don't have perfect privacy. We have a lot of privacy challenges. Um, Bitcoin is a pseudonymous system, which is good. I mean, it, it does not tie your identity to, you, you know, your address is not in, in, in the blockchain. Uh, but like people can kind of trace flows and if they can establish that like your real world identity is associated with a particular address and they see funds moving from that address to another address, um, they, they can like reasonably assume that that's you. So we have this issue of like chain surveillance um, and we need to fight that. So like to keep the idea of digital cash alive, we need to find ways for people to preserve privacy on the blockchain. So we have technology like CoinJoin, which means that you can like enter in, even if the government knows that like, 
that uh, the Bitcoin in this address is yours. You can enter into a transaction with like a hundred other people, which right now has like a, a what we call equal output. So like there'll be a hundred new in new addresses, a hundred uh, uh, amounts of the same amount. So the government will have no idea which one's yours. So that's one way of achieving privacy in Bitcoin. The problem is they know that you went to a coin join and they know that you're using privacy tech. Okay. So it's sort of like if they found out you had signal on your phone, they wouldn't know what you're saying, but they know you had signal, right? So, so this, it's not ideal. So eventually we're going to get to a point where we're going to be able to do like coin joins that are not distinguishable from a normal transaction. That's going to happen in the next few years. And at that point, it's like, like all over for, for, the, for the chain analysis people. Quick pause here to let everyone know that Chain Analysis, which Alex just mentioned, is a software company that works with governments, including the police, and companies uh, to help them decode transactions that are taking place on the blockchain. Next would be Lightning Network. I mean, we can also just take transactions off the surveillable chain into a second layer. Lightning has a lot of privacy challenges as well right now, but it's, it's, it's it's just an incredibly interesting technology for you to look at. I mean, it's a way we scale Bitcoin to a million billion people. I mean, it can support that kind of volume. It is uh, nation and young right now, but like as it continues to grow, like it, it, this ability, it basically what it is, is it like it allows you to spend your Bitcoin in a way where you can now be in like this like super fast private kind of second layer. And this is how you're going to like spend Bitcoin. If you wanted to buy something with it, you'd use Lightning because the fees are like almost non-existent and the speed is instant globally. Like you don't have to wait minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes. It's literally instant. It's the fastest payment you'll ever see. And it's a final settlement. And again, not associated with your identity. Uh, and there's ways that you can protect yourself. But all of these things are like, privacy here is like slow. I would say it's sufficient for most people around the world. But like, if you're like up against the NSA, it's, it's, it's tough right now. And the reason is because privacy was not like the main priority of Bitcoin from an engineering perspective. The goal here was to replace central banking, not to give like user privacy. So um, user privacy is being improved upon. It's over time, it's helping. But at the end of the day, like it's not the main engineering priority of Bitcoin developers. It's a very high one. I mean, it's probably top three, um, but it's not like the main one. And that's why you see some privacy people criticizing Bitcoin. Um, they're like, well, why don't you just privatize, prioritize Bitcoin privacy? Well, if we did that, we would lose the auditability, the strength of the system. We would lose the fact that no one controlled the monetary policy. So there's all it's a trade-offs like with anything. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I believe in a future where we can use Bitcoin as digital cash and as digital gold. There's a lot happening in crypto markets right now, including new currencies that promise to provide privacy. But from Alex's perspective, this is a harmful distraction that tends towards centralization thereby compromising the human rights potential that makes Bitcoin so unique. Although it may be more difficult, he encourages people who are focused on privacy to come work on it in the context of Bitcoin in service of the bigger picture goals. If you want to help, let's go. Let's like contribute to Bitcoin privacy. Like this, this is, this is the open source money project of the world. Like don't go create your own coin that you think or you say is more private because then it's your coin and we know who you are and we can go shut you down. Like you, you're going to be allowed to play with your coin as long as it's not threatening. Okay. If Satoshi was known, they would be dead. There's no question at this point or in some prison somewhere. So, I mean, you know, you see all these privacy coin creators, they're public figures because their project's not threatening. Okay. If it became threatening, that'd be the end of it because it's centralized. Like we know who they are. We know who the top devs are. And that's the end of that. Bitcoin is not built in the same way. You may be wondering at this point, if Bitcoin has so much to offer, why isn't everyone on board? In fact, Bitcoin has a lot of enemies who, based on their stated goals for society, whether as policymakers, technologists, environmentalists, etc., you might think should be its champions instead. This should cue you in that there is a lot of misinformation and confusion when it comes to Bitcoin. To round out our conversation, I ask Alex to help us understand a bit more about the resistance. Most people in tech really don't like it. Uh, most people in privacy don't really like it. Most people in computer science really hate it. Like it has a lot of like, um, the media has manufactured a lot of fake news about Bitcoin over the years and has 
push this negative narrative and it really has worked. I mean, most people really hate Bitcoin or, or don't like it or not interested in it. Um, then this goes for computer science experts, privacy scholars, um, you name it. It's like ironic, the thing that they would probably be most excited about if they actually learned about it uh, deeply, they hate, right? And there's not a whole lot we can do on that. I mean, we got to like, you know, just continue producing educational materials, answering people's questions. Those of whom become intrigued, they reach out and, and they, they fall down the hole too. And then we, we can talk and then, and then we can actually, you know, have a meaningful conversation. Um, but you can't, you can't force people. It's a completely voluntary system. People will enter into Bitcoin, at, you know, when they want, at, at, you know, I mean, we can try to expedite that for certain communities and groups that we care about, but it's not so easy because it's such a starkly different and shockingly, you know, different system and way of thinking. Um, so, you know, we do what we can, but we should not panic. I mean, Bitcoin will win in the end. So there you have it. For a long time, we've established an elaborate system of obligations for leaders with little success at holding those leaders accountable to human rights. Bitcoin may finally be a way for people to maintain healthy democracies by establishing a stable economic baseline that allows them to participate in the governance of their own lives. If people remain destitute, without healthcare, jobs, education, and whatever little money they do have subject to inflation and seizure, democracy becomes impossible. I'll leave you with a quote from pioneering cryptographer Wei Dai from 1995. I first read it in one of Alex's papers, and it sticks with me. There's never been a government that didn't sooner or later try to reduce the freedom of its subjects and gain more control over them, and there probably never will be one. Therefore, instead of trying to convince our current government not to try, we'll develop the technology that will make it impossible for the government to succeed. I'm your host, Ina Agarwal, and thank you for listening. Until next time.